Welcome to the Get Star Brazilian podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today is our monthly news roundup. Co-host Dan McDermott will take us through the episode today, and as is now tradition, he and I start with reflections on the guests and the learnings from each interview this month. Bradley Singh, our regular guest, then joins Dan to cover the latest news where they talk about the New Zealand Stock Exchange shutting down in the wake of that offshore cyber attack, the ACSC addressing 2,266 cybersecurity incidents last year, hackers claiming to have breached the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, the K7 math, 54,000 New South Wales driver's licenses exposed in a data breach, and particularly heavy piece of news in that it looks like we have the world's first fatality directly contributable to a cyber attack. We finished the episode out with Dan and I covering the government's code of practice for the Wild West, that is IoT and internet connected devices. So over to the episode, please enjoy. Welcome to uh, this episode of uh, the Get Cyber Resilient Show, where at the end of the month we uh, we look back on the amazing guests that we've had on the show over over the previous four weeks, um, reflect on that, and then also reflect on some of the big news items and what's been happening in the industry. So, Gar, welcome back to the show, and uh, you've had another interesting month of uh, of having amazing guests that have uh, been very generous with their time and and spending that with us in terms of discussing all things cyber. Um, you started off the month with Michael McKinnon, who is uh, the deputy chair of ASA uh, here in Melbourne, and really spoke a lot about, I guess, the skill shortage that we know exists in the industry, and really had to hit that head on with starting with the role of education and, and certifications in the world of cybersecurity. Can you tell us a bit more about what Michael's take was on, on, I guess, that education and certification process? Yeah, so I, I kind of, um, we've me and Michael have crossed paths multiple times over the years, and um, I think I mentioned this in the in the episode where he did a, an absolutely cracking uh, plenary talk um, on the CISO and the Gunslinger. Highly recommend that if people haven't already watched it. But uh, this time around, I was one of his students, so I've just gone through the uh, CISP training and haven't set the exam. I'm petrified about the exam, but you know, spent many weeks listening to to Michael. Uh, talk us through you know, like the various kind of um, domains of knowledge um, as part of CISP. So I guess he's probably biased because he, he's a guy who's actively trying to educate um, you know people in this industry. Um, I think look at the comments from Michael heard that it's obviously important. It's not everything, um, but it's it's certainly a really useful thing. I, I can only speak from my personal experience that I learned an absolute metric ton of stuff in that course. And um, you know, CISP, as everyone says, it's a an inch deep and a mile wide, and in many ways, I think what you know Michael said this is part of it is just letting you know what you don't know, so that you know you can go off and actually do the the further education and research and the bits that you potentially just weren't exposed to before, because it is such a huge kind of world that we operate in. Yeah, and but definitely something that is critical to the entire success of the industry, right? Is is getting that training right and making sure that we do have you know experts in in our field so that we can continue to uh, evolve and, and and face those attackers head on. You moved moved on to the the second uh, episode in the previous month was with uh, Joseph Carson um, from Thycotic, who is their chief security scientist and advisory CISO. Um, really different conversation and something that I found really interesting is being based in Estonia and how he spoke about looking at, you know, I guess, cyber resilience at a national level. Um, and that's something that we've been talking a lot about in Australia recently as well. And how Estonia's gone about trying to build cyber trust with their citizens, 
Um, what was your take on, on, on Joseph and I guess where Estonia are going with their, uh, their digital footprint and, and building that cyber trust? I absolutely loved that conversation and, you know, always learn stuff from the, the conversations we have. Um, but jo Joseph was particularly enlightening because I didn't realize to the extent um, that Estonia is this kind of advanced digital society. And, you know, the genesis of that with the, you know, the troubles they had with some of their neighbors back in the day and, you know, how they've kind of uh, evolved into this society that really... It's it's funny because when I was doing the research for that, I was looking for commentary from you know news and citizens and stuff like that. And some of the people there, when they're asked you know about storage of data, they're very kind of against the idea of things being stored in paper. Like for them, they are all about put it on put it digital. I can control it. You know, I mean, it's I, I, it's transparent. Almost the complete opposite of what you see in so many other countries. And uh, like as Joseph kind of talked through that and how they've kind of educated and changed an entire nation um, multiple times along the way where, you know, these light bulbs are just going off in my head, especially around the data embassies, which I'm, I've been slightly obsessed with because it just seems like such a cool idea and points to true resilience thinking, which, you know, for, for those who don't know, Estonia did the kind of analysis of where, where should they store data? And because of the potential for kind of land-based attacks because of where they are, having everything kind of backed up within their region and as in, in their country didn't really make sense because in a land-based attack, that stuff was going to get wiped out potentially too. And with them as a country, because everything is digital, you're talking about your whole life. So your identity, um, your driving license, your tax return, everything is digital and online. So it would be a big deal for that stuff to get wiped. So then they went and, and created what they call data embassies to get over the problem of data sovereignty, which is chuck the stuff in different countries and in these data embassies where it's essentially still sovereign soil, so you know, or considered at least sovereign soil. Um, what, a, what an elegant and beautiful way to take care of that problem. And what big thinking, as you said, Dan, like it's national level cyber resilience. It's just, it's, I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Yeah, I was fascinated by the whole digital embassy concept, and and it takes the notion of data sovereignty to an entirely new level, right? And and everybody thinks about you know you've got to keep it on on shore, and I guess as as an island here, far away from a lot of the rest of the world, that may be possible, but it's everywhere is um, you know has risk in that, and the ability to to have resilience at a at a new level and creating these digital embassies is uh yeah is quite incredible and was really fascinating to learn about. The next guest you had was uh, Andrew Bycroft, uh, the CEO of iResilience and the author of The Cyber Intelligent Executive, Securing the Future of Your Organization, um, which is a good read. Everybody should uh, get a hand on that as well. And now, um, really, I guess this is a you know interesting take on the notion of building in resilience and security as an executive conversation and really driving that from the top down um, across all organisations of all different sizes and how to get the mind share of, of people at that executive level and then sort of building that culture, if you like, throughout the organisation from there. Um, what was your take with uh, Andrew's, Andrew's views on sort of building that resilience and security across, uh, the, the, I guess, the C-level and board level and then across the organisation? Yeah, so like Andrew, I, I've crossed paths again with him uh, a couple of times. I think we've met at conferences. Um, I one of the, the sort of engagements we had um, some time ago. Now he was in there as a a security consultant, so I kind of got to know him uh, during that process. And I really like Andrew's thinking. 
Um, it's a little bit different. You know, it sort of comes at this stuff from a different angle. And I think, as you just said, the the importance of culture in cybersecurity, but that board level understanding of the difference between cybersecurity and cyber resilience, I think um, it's incredibly important as a, a difference, you know, a, a thing to understand the difference of, I should say. Um, but I particularly like his his kind of codifying some of the kind of the stuff around, um, you know, creating models. So you've got different tiers and understand where an organization is in terms of cyber uh, resilience and also his attributes um, around culture, because I think sometimes we have these conversations, but what you really need is just the detail, um, you know, to, to really understand what does good culture look like. And I think Andrew's done a great job of uh, breaking down the the attributes or the things that you would see in a good culture that plays into um, to cybersecurity. So yeah, I was uh, really enjoyed that uh, that conversation. Yeah, you're right. It's easy to say the words, you know, create a security culture, but uh, you need some practical ways of actually how you go about doing that. And I think you know he provides that framework that I think we all can sort of you know learn from and start to be able to adhere and make that notion of, of a culture, I guess, practical in terms of its application um, and rollout across an organization as well. And we finished up uh, with our most recent guest being uh, Beverly Roach, from uh, who runs her own uh, podcast. I definitely would encourage people to jump onto that called Cybersecurity Cafe um, and is currently the uh, interim CISO at Sigma Healthcare. Um, and I guess a, a wide range of conversation again, but, uh, you know, the common theme so often is, is the role of humans in, in cyber and what it means. Um, and again, Beverly has, you know, great insights on that. She definitely does. And I, I said this, I think, in the interview, I particularly like speaking to people who've got that kind of broad range and depth of uh, experience within their careers and Beverly's done you know data privacy security in a bunch of different companies um, including you know the safety office back in the day as well so like has has um significant form uh, in the industry so it's particularly good at sort of commentary and you're spot on Dan you know it's back to the humans as it so often is and um you know the insights I got from Beverly were really around some of the myths I think for me was the thing that stood out about um you know humans and cyber security um, but also then looking at the the management of the life cycle of uh, workers as they come into roles and how security plays out for somebody in a, maybe a, like a marketing position versus somebody in an op- operational uh, position. Um, but the idea that security isn't the same for everybody, and um, you know, really the idea that if you're delivering the same security messaging to like the technical teams as you are to somebody maybe who sits in finance or human resources. Like those two things are probably not going to land in the same way. So, um, phenomenal conversation, and and you know, I could have easily talked to Beverly. I think over a cup of tea or a pint for hours. Um, she's she's a very uh, natural podcast host, and um, yeah, the episodes that they they have, I think, are definitely worth checking out, including stuff around design thinking, uh, which I think is particularly uh, applicable to certainly the human side of cybersecurity. So yeah, definitely one for for um, our audience to check out. Yeah, for sure. So uh, that sort of wraps up our review of uh, the, the latest editions. Um, thanks again to all our guests, um, really incredibly generous with their time and giving us the insights and being able to share that with our audience is, uh, is something that we really appreciate and look forward to uh, the next lot of guests that I know you've already uh, lined up uh, going forward as well. So thanks again, Gar, and we'll speak again soon. Thanks, Dan. 
We'll now have a look back at what have been some of the big incidents and, and news breakers, if you like, of uh, the last month. Welcome back to the show, Bradley Singh. Brad, good to see you. How are you going today? Very good. Thank you, Dan. I'm uh, trying to investigate at the moment, actually, because uh, a strange piece of metal randomly fell off a building and hit my car. So that's what I was doing this morning. But today we're here to talk about cybersecurity. How are you, Dan? Yeah, good. And uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, blowy here the other day. And um, uh, I'm glad you weren't outside at the time, that's for sure. Well, today we're going to look back on some of the big you know, news items from the month uh, that's just taken place. And we're going to actually start um, over the ditch in, in, in New Zealand with the New Zealand Stock Exchange and, you know, the fact that they were taken down by a denial of service attack. What can you tell us about that? I think the, the fact that they were taken down was one thing, but they were actually down for five consecutive days, um, which is probably one of the larger attacks we've seen against a well, financial institution, especially in New Zealand. Um, it appears to have been a DDoS attack, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with a DDoS attack, so effectively sending large amounts of network traffic or making it so the server can't respond. Um, interestingly enough, the New Zealand Stock Exchange, they even changed their hosting providers from Extreme to Akami halfway through. The attacks still, still persisted, and I guess this raises a, you know, a wider conversation, like if it's your provider which gets targeted, what do you do as an organisation to help mitigate that risk? Yeah, and five days down for a stock exchange is a long time and, you know, it has, you know, huge flow on impacts on in terms of the economy and what's happening in that market. And, you know, as we know, in the in these times of, of the pandemic and, and things, the economy already struggling and on its knees in many ways, you know, tax like this certainly, you know, obviously don't help at any time, but are making things even worse at the moment as well. The market did close down that day in New Zealand and it had been up every single other day of the week when the attack first happened. So I'm not sure if it's related or not. Um, it does go hand in hand um, from a Be Prepared Advisory, which the GCSB, so many acronyms of cybersecurity, security, uh, the Government Communication Security Bureau over in New Zealand, um, they had a Be Prepared Advisory, kind of advising it to w- look out for state-sponsored attacks, ransomware in BC, so it kind of goes hand in hand. Interestingly enough, though, the New Zealand Stock Exchange has also responded in that they've created an additional website, so I think it's announcements.nzx, and it's effectively hosted on different infrastructure. And what they do there is a secondary, they post the top 200 announcements every single day. So a little bit of resilience if the main platform goes down. Hmm. Well, yeah, definitely a good idea to always have have a secondary way of doing things, right? And you never know when an attack might might strike and the impact that it can have. So yeah, definitely good planning on, on their behalf on, on that front. We then sort of look at uh, back here in Australia, the... Um, we had the annual report released uh, by the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, um, looking back at the last financial year, June, um, July 2019, sorry, to June 2020, um, on the number of uh, incidents that were being reported and investigated by them, um, nearly 2,300 incidents. Is this something that, you know, we should be worried about? Is this a big number? I mean, it's a big number. I definitely should be worried about. Um, what I would say is, look, for anybody interested in cybersecurity, and I'd like to assume that probably most of our listeners are, given the nature of the podcast, um, the annual report, the ACSC, it's more acronyms, Australian Cybersecurity Centre release, um, is an absolute treasure trove of information in terms of different reported breaches. One of the interesting stats um, from the, la- the latest report um, was highlighting the fact that government was the most highly reported. And I'll leave it there as a keyword on reported as well, because it still is, this is on organisations to report their breaches as well. So potentially we do see maybe more reporting around government, 
But outside of key government, uh, 35% of the breaches were around critical infrastructure. So we're talking water, health, communications and education, which is consistent with what we've been seeing over the past kind of year or so. Yeah, and it definitely ties into the overall sort of narrative around, you know, security at a, at a national level and what that means and, and how we need to be prepared and the notion of those attacks on our critical government and critical infrastructure certainly ties into, I guess, the go forward plan from the government regarding sort of positive security obligations um, or PSOs as, we are, as we're liking the acronyms today, um, you know, and what that means going forward as this legislation will come into effect, you know, going into next year as well. So certainly uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a scary figure in terms of the amount of, I guess, attacks and incidents that have been reported uh, in the last year alone. I would say as well, this, there is some good stats in there for anyone listening as well, just uh, in terms of the, the entry vector. Um, not Unsurprisingly, email does remain the number one attack vector, but we still do see in this uh, quite a high amount of compromised accounts as well. And I just think if we think back to some of the sophisticated attacks like ANU last year, where they gained access to the network, sat on that for a very long time, we're going to see more and more of these attacks where they're potentially using email as the entry, but then sitting on the network for a, for a longer period of time. Yeah, it's a it's a scary thought to think that there are they're just they're lurking in the shadows, right, at, at all times. Which leads to a, another, I guess, a large scale sort of breach that has been reported, um, and uh, one that you know around sort of the Department of Education and a particular um, online maths program um, called K Seven Maths um, that has been has been breached and sort of uh, picked up and reported by Ossert. Um What can you tell us about that? So, from what I could tell, this breach was huge. Um, not new in the sense that allegedly this breach happened earlier in the year, I think about March uh, or kind of around April time. Um, but originally, there was a uh, effectively what happened is somebody found it online. They found a dump with a bunch of student details, uh, hashed passwords uh, on a forum for sale. Um, it was reported to OzCert, and OzCert quickly went and started to investigate to try and figure out where it was, where it was from. Originally, it was thought that maybe it was the Department of Education who had been breached themselves, but it was a third-party provider in this instance, K7 Maths. I had a quick look at their website. They offer some type of classroom services for students, but that's a lot of data. It's also consistent with what we've seen um, earlier this year when there was an app called Mathaway, which was breached, where 25 million users lost their details as well. So I think, again, really to your point earlier, Dan, focusing back on education as, as a prime target, but... Also, again, raising that concept of we're dealing with third parties, who's our providers, what security do they have in place, and then ultimately what happens, like who, how do we then, I guess, resolve this and, and move forward? Where's the resilience approach to it and what's the plan B? Yeah, this was one that um, I hadn't heard of in, in the news and that. I missed it previously, so it was uh, good to learn about it. And the first thing I did was uh, went to my boys and asked whether uh, whether they've been using K7 Maths at school or not. Um, uh, fortunately, neither of them recognised the program and, and thought not, but it was certainly as a, as a parent was a concern of, you know, you don't want, you know, kids' details sort of out there online and, and you know, just the fear of what might go wrong in, in when it falls into the wrong hands. Um, and who they might sort of who who could target them and that type of thing. So certainly one that uh, to be aware of, and uh, yeah, it was certainly a learning on my behalf as well. There there is an advisory out as well. So if anyone is, um, I guess, looking for recommendations or worried about their privacy, their their kids' privacy as well, um, there was an advisor. Uh, one of the advisories from OzCert was saying that they'll 
probably see a spike in BC or fraud-style attacks as a result of this. There was actually a campaign a couple of years ago targeting Australian schools where what they did is they effectively got a dump of usernames or passwords and they would email teachers across Australia saying, hey, I've got naughty photos of you, and they would put the plain text password they'd stolen from a dump in the subject line. So I guess watch out for similar style of attacks now that there seems to be a lot of details out there. Well, thanks for pointing out that there's an advisory on that as well. That's uh, definitely something that everybody should be across and then be aware of, that's for sure. Um, I guess one that I have seen in the news has certainly been around sort of the New South Wales driver's licence breach and and what's happened there. And then I guess the ongoing sort of investigation and response from the government as well in terms of um, the way that they've, you know, had to, I guess, forensically look at this and what the implications of that are. Um, so it's definitely a, a high-profile attack and, and one that, you know, again, a, a driver's licence is, is something that can obviously be used in a wide array of sort of, you know, identity theft um, as well. Yeah, look, I think New South Wales, um, from a cybersecurity spec perspective, haven't had uh, the greatest track record recently. There's definitely been a lot of high-profile breaches in the news. The clarity around this specific breach in terms of the 54,000 driver's licenses, it looks like it was a third party, so a third party commercial provider, potentially nothing to do with the New South Wales government at all, just had 50,000 um, driver's license scanned there. But it was separate also to the, the breach, um, which happened a month earlier, which was the 30, 47 staff who had their details compromised. But what it has spun up, though, is a parliamentary inquiry at a state level in terms of how cybersecurity is being conducted. It's also important to note that the current New South Wales government has opposed mandatory data breach reporting at a state level for the past three years, but recently, as of I think early this year, there's a new bill proposed around it. So, a lot of spotlight around it. Um, this one, technically not their fault, but I think also, again, highlights the, the, the value around these details, um, the potential accounts and identities you can steal with them. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the person, people who suffer here is the consumer. And I still don't think we've actually had an answer in terms of where they've specifically come from. Yeah, like you say, it's, uh, the risks are, you know, throughout, I guess, your, your supply chain, right? I think that's always one of the things of, like, where are you, who is who are you using, where are you storing data, um, and, you know, how secure are they? Um, creates, you know, one of those vulnerabilities throughout the whole process as well. Uh, we're going to end looking at, uh, I think, you know, definitely a very sad item and, and something that has been reported out of Germany recently, um, you know, detailing the fact that, you know, we've had the first reported death um, resulting from a ransomware attack. Um, just incredibly sad and a tragic set of circumstances, but I think really brings to bear and shows, you know, the reason why, you know, we, we're so passionate about this industry and what we're trying to do um, because there is a real impact and a real human toll that can uh, can occur from from when things do go wrong and when, you know, cyber criminals get in and might think that it's just, you know, a bit of financial gain, but the implications and the impacts on people um, are something that are wide-ranging and, and, and really scary to think of as well. Yeah, this is a really, really sad story. And Look, I think important to talk about on the podcast as well, just because we, we talk about security a lot and we see it, I think, glamorized in the media to a degree as well, but there is a real human toll to it. And I think this is a prime example <clears> of potentially where something unfortunate and tragic may have happened as a result. 
Um, effectively, what happened, it was a university hospital Düsseldorf over in Germany. Um, prosecutors alleged that ransomware is to blame. So effectively, there's a patient, she was needed emergency care, going to hospital. She got to the hospital, but effectively the systems were offline due to the ransomware attack. They sent her to another hospital 20 miles down the road and she didn't survive. Um, so absolutely tragic in terms of, I guess, you know, the, the human impact from that. But if we start to drill down into the attack itself, it starts to get even more concerning. Um, they were using a Citrix, uh, an older version of Citrix, which had a very well-known and public uh, uh, exploit in it, which they hadn't patched. Um, so effectively, it was known bad. Uh, the ransomware hit 30 servers. Uh, in their investigations as well, and attribution, I know Gar speaks about this from time to time, it's always a hard thing to do, um, but German authorities are allegedly, it's going back to effectively Russian gangs or, or Russian trolls. The unfortunate thing about this also is that if we think about the industry such as healthcare, there is a chance they're more likely to pay ransomware payments because they need access to the data so quickly. So it's this very complicated psychological play where they're effectively holding people's lives at ransom. Um, and again, I can't speak enough in terms of how horrible this was, but really hope that the um, the universities, you know, patches their systems, follows the advisories, and follows good cybersecurity practice. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for uh, being able to detail that for us, Brad. And uh, it's certainly a, a somber way to end the month in review, but something that uh, is critically important and does show the hot and highlight the importance of, I guess, you know, great security practices and what needs to be done and um you know as an industry i think we're all sort of on that path together to try to uh, create you know a more resilient world if you like and that will uh, certainly put us in good stead and sort of hopefully you know stop these types of attacks having the impact that they have recently thanks again brad and we'll uh, we'll catch up again next month look forward to it thanks for having me dan for the final part of today's episode um, a return to talking to Gar O'Hara regarding, I guess, what he has termed as, as the Wild West of security um, and IoT and what's happening with the Internet of Things um, and the security vulnerabilities that come with that. Um, it's an interesting time. Gar is uh, recently, the government has also put out the, uh, the code of practice regarding IoT devices um, and something that I think, you know, we need to consider how does that get adopted um, and what's the implications of that uh, for society? Yeah, and the implications are huge, I think, is the, the really concerning part. And the like, conversations I've had on this, uh, Dan, and you know, as recently as, and like literally in the last hour uh, with, uh, with people on this, where like the reality is you could walk into a, a you know, hardware store and you can buy a light bulb that's IoT or you know, internet enabled. And you're psychologically, you're not really set up to think about security in that situation. You're buying a light bulb or you're buying a toaster or you're buying a, you know, whatever the widget is. And I think, you know, fundamentally, that's a really different sort of place than sitting down in front of a computer where, you know, you hope things like stay smart online and those kind of initiatives are landing and people are thinking about what they click on. They're a little bit skeptical of emails or, um, you know, websites that look a bit funny, you know, and the education that you know, is, is, we're hoping is kind of starting to land now. That sort of all falls apart when you go and buy a piece of hardware that is going to make your life easier. You know, the you know, ring doorbells or um, like, the, you know, lots of different products out there. Um, cameras, uh, so many different IoT devices. And it. I suppose the worry is sometimes that it's too late. You know, the market is driven to cheap and you can't really do cheap and security well um, often. 
And um, I think the government to, you know, for, to issue the code of practice, I think is an excellent first step. And it's all common sense. If you look at the, the code of practice, it's about the kind of things that you would you'd sort of assume are, I suppose, obvious from a security perspective, you know, vulnerability disclosure policies, um, no defaults um, or kind of weak passwords, um, software being kept up to date, stuff that, you know, you would assume is kind of bread and butter security, but actually given that many of the devices are basically manufactured to be as cheap as possible because that's what's going to drive the market. Um, like my two cents is that a code of practice is a good start, but, um, you know, without some sort of regulation, like what's the incentive to do the right thing if people will just buy the the cheapest version of a an IoT device? So I think it's an incredibly important conversation to have. And my personal worry is that we're, we're maybe a little bit too late in having the conversation. Um, and it's very, very complex. But I think, yeah, the, the code of practice is a great start. And um, yeah, I look forward to hopefully seeing um, yeah, some legislation or laws that kind of you know, protect Australian citizens. Um, I think when you and I were talking, if I buy a toaster, like I know I'm protected because there's uh, consumer rights and, and consumer uh, laws that protect me uh, from, you know, the cable not being uh, good enough quality so that, you know, potentially there's a, an electric fire. So we have all these laws that protect consumers in, uh, you know, for normal devices, but they were never written for this age that we live in, which is you could buy a toaster and then have an app on your phone that tells you when, you're, when your bread is perfectly browned and you can walk into the kitchen and pick it up. Um, but we, we need to have that conversation, in my opinion, um, the, the, you know, the risk of uh, look, these things being a hop off point into people's computers where they can you know, then potentially steal uh, information um, or or do worse things. Um, I think it's a worry, and yeah, you know, we need to we need to have an adult conversation about how we protect Australian citizens. And is that where you do see it going, sort of from this voluntary code of practice, if you like, that is in place at the moment, to actually you know being enforceable and being part of legislation um, to ensure that I guess that it happens. But as you say, like the thing is, so many devices are now already out there. It feels a mm. bit like the horse is bolted. It, it does, but I mean, the one sort of maybe positive thing about our consumer society is that people want the newest and the greatest and latest things. So um, like you're spot on, there's a bunch of stuff out there that is a worry, but um, given we're, we're fairly good at sort of buying things pretty reasonably um, soon, um, I, I think what you set up is a set of legislation that as people are kind of renewing I don't know, webcams that are um, connectable, you know, sort of security cams that are IP enabled. So you can connect to them by apps on your phones or, you know, toasters or foot warmers or like pretty much everything you could possibly buy these days is some version that's internet enabled. And I often wonder like why, why is probably the question I have most often with those things, but whatever, like I get it, you know, some of it's really convenient. Um, but yeah, I would love to see that it, it is legislation rather than just a code of practice because, you know, market forces will just drive to cheapest if it's not regulated. I mean, that's just how capitalism in its current form works. So the reality is like laws would serve us maybe not immediately, but what you'd hope to see is a kind of slow trickle out of unsecured devices. And then as people buy new things, they kind of have to comply with the equivalent of consumer laws for cyber gear um, that, you know, we then see better protection for all of us. Yep, definitely. Certainly, uh, I think 
a lot to play out in that space and um, definitely an area to keep, keep an eye on and make sure that, yeah, we are sort of doing the right thing and being able to protect everybody at the same time as creating these new applications and new sort of conveniences for life as well. So certainly a balancing act to, to be struck there, that's for sure. Well, thank you, Gar. I really appreciate your insights and uh, thanks again for another great month on the Get Cyber Resilient show um, and looking forward to the upcoming guests in uh, in new episodes um, in the in the coming weeks. So everybody uh, look out for Podcast Tuesday. Each Tuesday the new edition will be up and live um, and uh, hopefully yeah, continuing the conversation of good cyber security and resilience in uh, the Australian and New Zealand industry. And that's a wrap for September. Thanks to Dan for hosting today's episode. Thanks to Bradley for the insights, and I hope your car gets repaired soon. And thank you for listening. Dip into the past archives, and if you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and rate us. It helps us a lot. For now, thanks for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.